Bienvenidas a Courageous Mujer Podcast. I'm your host, Gladys Godínez, and I am here out of Lexington, Nebraska, and right smack in the middle of Nebraska, so welcome. I want to let you know that Courageous Mujer Podcast started in February of 2021, earlier this year, if you can only imagine, and we've started this uh, podcast just to be able to embrace, celebrate, and uplift Latinas throughout the states. So I am excited to, for you to get to know Norma. Norma uh, Flores Lopez is the Chief Programs Officer for Justice for Migrant Women, and she is doing such great work. I look forward for you to get to know her and to get to learn a little bit about her story, her very important work, and an upcoming event that she wants to invite you to. So without further ado, let's get started. My name is Gladys Godinez. I'm your host for Courageous Mujer Podcast here with United by Culture Media. We're so excited to have Norma Flores Lopez from Justice for Migrant Women. We're uh, Norma, we were just talking two seconds ago, and I mean, we couldn't stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just ready to dig in into your story. You're, you're doing so much for not only my community here, you know, in local Lexington, Nebraska, in rural Nebraska, but you're also doing it for the nation and for migrant women specifically and children. I know a lot of your story also has uh, it has the impact of children working in the field. So I want to dig into all of that. But first things first, you know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from? Thank you for having me. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm working now as a chief programs officer at Justice for Migrant Women, and I draw a lot on my story, on, on my roots um, that inform my work and really inspire me to keep doing the work that I do. Uh, I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, in the very, very southern tip of Texas, right on the border with Mexico. Uh, I grew up uh, with parents who were migrant farm workers. Um, my, both of my parents were born in the U.S., but were raised in Mexico. It, it was back when the border was a little bit more porous, where the work the workers would come in from Mexico, go up north to go work the fields and be able to go back to their homes um, in Texas. I mean, in, in Mexico. But then as policies ended up tightening up the border, my parents uh, ended up having to be the, the folks that had the papers to be able to cross into the U.S. and to be able to work to feed their families. Uh, both of my parents come from desperate poverty. Um, both of them come from agricultural backgrounds. Uh, my grandparents, you know, would have their own lands. But because, again, because of these policies and we don't really think about the impact that it has on the families, and ended up pushing my family to be able to come into the U.S. and to stay in the U.S. with the borders locking up. Uh, but it was my my dad and my mom who each respectively um, were born, on, just so happens to be in the U.S. side. And so with those papers, they were sent up north to go work in the fields at very young ages. My dad had to be pulled out in sixth grade, my mother in third grade, whereas she was able to read and write and do basic math and be able to write her name. They said, good enough. Because again, that desperate poverty was really driving their family. And so that was how they met on the fields. And they continued that legacy throughout their whole lives. They've recently retired from being migrant farm workers and traveling up north. But they would take me and my sisters along. I'm one of five girls. Um, and we would pack up all of our belongings to the back of a pickup truck. And we would make our trek up north to be able to follow the harvest and uh, go up to the states like Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Colorado, um, picking anything from asparagus to apples to detasseling corn um, and doing that backbreaking work for 10, 12 hour days. Um, that is something that I did 
probably my earliest memories around the age of nine. And it was because of a lack of childcare. There was nobody to watch us. So we would accompany my parents. And like many migrant farm workers, it started off with play. Uh, you know, let's race each other who could fill up this bucket the quickest. Let's see who could be able to get there to the end the fastest and just ways to be able to entertain us while we were out there with my parents. Um, that was their way of keeping us safe, of being able to have us near them. They can keep an eye on us. But eventually that evolved into full-time work. And in the U.S., you are allowed to start working at the age of 12 for an unlimited amount of hours, as long as it's not during the school day. So what that meant is in the summers, I'd be working 10, 12-hour days in backbreaking work, using big, heavy tools, being exposed to billions of pounds of chemicals every year. Uh, what that means is, you know, really cold mornings or really hot afternoons, uh, trying to keep up with the adults. That meant working sometimes three, four weeks straight without any days off. Um, and again, having to keep up with that work. And it was a desperate poverty that was also driving our work. And that's the great irony is that the very farm workers who are picking the fruits and vegetables that we enjoy every day can't even afford those same fruits and vegetables. We go to the grocery store and we see the markups and we're just astounded at how much they're charging us back for the very fruits right. and vegetables that we picked and how they are outside of our reach. And so that really just inspired uh, who I was. It was in the classroom that I explored who I was and, and uh, what it meant to be a Latina, what it meant to be an American, explore all of those pieces of me and to be encouraged to learn more about the history of farm workers. And so I was asked in high school to think of a justice project, an injustice in the U.S. And I couldn't think of a bigger injustice as a teenager than having to go work in the fields to be able to earn uh, enough money to buy my school supplies while my classmates didn't have to do that. You know, and to be able to see already then I was becoming aware of this popular narrative of how folks in the country painted poverty as a lack of character as laziness when I saw nobody working harder than my parents mm -hmm. um, and how my parents were robbed of that quote unquote American dream of how they were U.S. born citizens. And yet they didn't even get basic education. They weren't getting paid a fair wage for the hard work that they were doing. And um, it, it allowed me to explore on that side. And I'm glad that I got to I was encouraged to do that in school. And, and that's what really inspired the activism in me and inspired me to be able to speak out even in small ways, like in the classroom, when they kept wanting to put me in remedial classes or in ESL, you know, Spanish uh, speaking classes when I was a very smart student. But it was just a failed system that just kept putting me to the default and lowering the bar for me instead of giving me the resources I needed to be able to do well in school um, because I would start school late or I would be pulled out of school early. And that was a challenge of dealing with that every single year. And so well, Norma, that, before before yeah. we continue, the Hame, just like let me taste a little bit of your childhood <laughs> just for a little bit. Uh, sure. I think the imagery of farms like you like we've talked before is the imagery is this white farmer in the fields, you know, harvesting. And even to this day, we still see that in the in TV shows and pictures, anything that has to do with agriculture. We don't see an image of us. We see an image of uh, a white farmer family, you know, overcoming their adversity, but not seeing the migrant farm worker that is currently helping with their harvest. I want to just reflect a little bit on your childhood, if, if we may, um, revisiting a day-to-day -day 
piece for you. And just talking a little bit about, because I don't have that experience. I have an experience of working when I was a child, but I was working at a flea market in Inglewood, California, you know, and then we would travel back and forth from Costa Mesa to Inglewood to LA to, you know, um, Bakersfield and just different places in the West Coast. Uh, but, and I was also working, you know, because we were poor, because we needed to eat, because we needed to have a house or shelter. So I understand the child worker piece. Can you, can you explain to me a little bit more of what a day-to-day looks like? And what is this still happening today? So I'll start with the second part of, yes, it absolutely still is happening today. Um, uh, the numbers are really hard to come by, especially when there are no resources being put and being able to count these pieces, but it absolutely is happening. Our estimates say that it's anywhere between 300,000 and 500,000 children that continue to work in agriculture, and it is perfectly legal for them to be out there. They are doing jobs that are incredibly dangerous, that have shown to have negative impacts on their health, both short-term and long-term. And it is also the deadliest um, industry for these children to be working in. The numbers are real. The impact that it has on education is also very real. So then you end up having these farmer youth dropping out at four times the national average. Mm-hmm. Um, these are kids then without an education, ending up having to repeat Uh, the story of their parents, of having to be trapped in that generational cycle of poverty that continues to drive those children to be out there working um, and and risking their health. In regards to what my day-to-day looked like, sadly, as I hear now stories from children that continue to work today, there's not a whole lot different. There are some pieces that are different, but there are these threads that tie my story together to them, to my parents, and some of those same pieces that are out there. It's backbreaking work. Um, it's work that really does crush you both figuratively and literally. Uh, for me, my day would start three, four in the morning, having to wake up. And the night before I would always go to bed in my work clothes because it just gave me two, three more minutes to to sleep. So I would be sleeping in my old work jeans and my t-shirt and we would lace up our muddy boots. Um, oftentimes with, you know, sore or, you know, hurting fingers, you know, from the day before with aching backs from the night before, um, having to put on bandanas over the sunburns from the night, day before, um, having to trudge along with your whatever equipment it was, whether it was a hoe that we were carrying or it was a sharp scissors that we were holding uh, that were a little bit on the rusty side, whatever it is that we had to take with us, all of our equipment. And then also our basic needs. Although the federal government back then and even today is supposed to guarantee us to have things like basic water or a bathroom, um, regular breaks, those were things we couldn't count on. So I would carry on me some toilet paper. I would carry on me some snacks, you know, some basic things that we wouldn't trust anybody else because it will make the difference between life and death out there. Um, and, and we knew that being out there in the fields, we were alone. We were at the mercy of the contractor or the foreman, whoever was speaking on our behalf to the grower, to the owner. And we knew that we the chances of any inspectors coming out there were slim to none. Uh, there wasn't anybody. And I can say that with certainty that out of all of the years that I worked out in the fields from when I was a young child all the way through senior year of high school, I never once saw an inspector out there. Never once was I asked, how are you being treated? Are you are all the rights being followed? Uh, you know, all the applicable laws and protections. And I remember also in high school, when we talk about 
things like what a person is worth. We're not just looking at the monetary side of things, but the dignity that comes with it. As a high schooler, there was a year where I had one of our foremen, this white man that just would yell at me on a daily basis, curse at me on a daily basis, tell me that I was worthless because I wasn't working at the speed that he wanted. I wasn't doing the things that he wanted me to do. He just really took it out. He was miserable, hated working with us, quote unquote, Mexicans, and just really laid into me on a daily basis and cursing at me using bad words. My mother didn't speak any English and she would be next to me and just say, what is he saying? I'd be like, nada, mami, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Trying to be able to protect my mom. My mom knew what was happening, but couldn't ha- didn't have the words to be able to do anything about it. And, and that was year after, I mean, day after day, that whole year that I just had this man going off on me. And the same man when, would be trying to rush us to hurry up through our fields so he could be able to go and help young white kids working because he wanted to be around his people. And with him, it was like night and day. With me, it was cursing at me, telling me how I was worthless. And with them, he was a ray of sunshine, super kind and helpful. And it would, it, I never really had the words to describe it until later on. Somebody told me it's really hard to yell and treat children badly when you have to go sit in church with their parents the next day. We were mm. other. They weren't. They were part of the same community. They deserved the dignity and respect. We didn't. We were nobodies to them. And Norma, that that experience explains to me what you just said about the four times of the high school students dropping out. You know, it explains to me why young kiddos may not see their worth or may not feel like they exist or may not feel like they're somebody in this world because we get treated a certain way or uh, because our stories tend not to matter. You know, at some at some extent, that's how I feel sometimes, our invisibility factor. I want to ask you, you know, it's Courageous Mujer podcast. Obviously, you're on here because of your courage. What happened then in high school that get, you said, tú dijiste I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to walk over and I'm going to, you know, graduate from high school. I'm going to make it to college. I'm going to, you know, just overcome, you know, really. And and to me, you're powerful, you're growing, you're courageous, you're surviving, right? Because we're surviving all of this. But to some extent, it does affect us. It gives us some sort of trauma uh, when we get treated this way. How did you overcome? What, What happened? What shook you? I drew inspiration from my parents. My my parents were uh, the type of people that would sacrifice anything to give us every opportunity they couldn't. And that is the story of so many immigrant families. They love us so much. They are willing to sacrifice anything for us. And my family was one of those. I was very fortunate to have parents that would be willing to cut a season short and come back early so I wouldn't miss as much school, even though we felt those financial repercussions for years after that. Um, My parents would go without. They would scrape together all the money that they could and a full season of working in the fields to be able to get me a computer so I could be able to do well in school. This was back when computers weren't everywhere, right? (laughs) They were not cheap things. Um, 
And, and so with my dad, I remember sitting with him once and asking him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And my dad is one of the smartest people I ever have met in my life. He could do math at the top of my at his head. I've taken him to big cities and he's just spitting out facts about Chicago and New York City and things that I don't even know when I'm college educated. <laughs> he's just one of those that just loves to learn. And he told me he loves school. And one of his biggest regrets in life was that he wasn't able to finish school. He would look around the house and he says, you see all of this that we were able to build? He's like, this is nothing compared to what I could have been had I been given the opportunity. And so to me, that was that was more than enough of an encouragement to be able to finish school, to know that I'm being offered an opportunity that they were denied, um, that the American promise was supposed to give them and that they didn't receive. And so... To me, it mattered so much to be able to do more now that I had that opportunity. And I tried to be able to inspire the next generations to be able to see what a gift it is that they have of how much people have fought for and sacrificed so that they can be able to have that chance to truly be who they want to be, to fulfill that promise, their full potential. And so to me, it, it gives me so much inspiration to continue to work alongside the youth and to be able to see how they're working hard, not only for themselves, but to be able to make it better for those that are behind them. And that's how we're going to get to the to the promised land, to the top, to be able to be in those positions of power, to be able to make real change is by all of us, not only looking out for ourselves, but to follow that example that comes from our parents, that comes from our roots, from our indigenous, you know, ancestors of not just looking out for ourselves, but to look out for our community as a whole and to be able to make some real change to change tomorrow to be a better place because we owe it to our parents, to our people that came before us who worked so hard and sacrificed so much for us. That makes my heart warm because I can totally relate to my parents, you know, and they and how much they have worked. And same as your parents, uh, they didn't go to, you know, the highest uh, grade that they completed was sixth grade. So they didn't complete middle school. They didn't complete high school. Uh, but it was very much ingrained in us that education was very important. Therefore, we needed to go to high school. Therefore, we needed to go to college and try to be able to take advantage of those opportunities that, like you said, they never had. So let's elevate and celebrate your parents. What are their names? That's Refugio Flores and Carmen Flores Medina. Yes, we have to do it, you know, so, you know, because they come with us, right? You just Absolutely. said he can't, he has, he comes with me to Chicago. He comes with me to New York. Igual, right? My sister takes my parents everywhere and I take yeah. my parents wherever we can <laughs> because exactly. we know we want them to experience the fruit of their labor. And if at all, at all possible through us, you know, when we're able to, and capable of doing that for them. So it's really, it's really cool that you're able to do that. So, okay. So we went to high school, you graduated, you overcame where, what, where did you go? Did you go to college close to home? Did you go to college away from home? Absolutely. You know, again, the Latino story, right, where my parents wanted me close by. You know, if I'm a good student, I'm going to be a good student in any classroom. And so why go so far away? And so I ended up staying close by and went to the University of Texas Pan American, where I did receive a wonderful education. Um, I started as a physics major with a minor in math. I had dreams of becoming an aeronautical engineer and going on to Purdue University. And I had this whole other plan for me. But little did I know that God had a different plan for me. Um, and I ended up really getting inspired uh, to be able 
able to share my story, the story of self, how powerful stories are and how it's been a part of our communities for a really long time. Again, back to our ancestors, to the indigenous communities that we come from storytelling is so important and that's what inspired me to be able to instead get my degree in communications uh and so i as a young activist i had these big dreams of you know if i just share my story uh, you know it's going to inspire so much change because the reason these things are happening these injustices these systems of oppression stay there because people don't know people go into the grocery store and they see these beautiful bright blue skies and red barns and beautiful fields and they think that this is the reality and I it is my job to tell the real story of what farm workers are and so I go out there into the world and 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 very quickly learn that it takes a little bit more than a story <laughs> it takes real action it takes collective action it takes a community organizing it takes you know pushing and and holding our political leaders accountable and I started to learn the ropes and that eventually led me uh, to from those small little towns where I would go and work in, in rural communities, harvesting those fruits and vegetables to Washington, D.C. And that's where I've been dedicating my career of bringing stories like mine uh, in front of our elected officials the same way that they receive these big lobbyists and rich people. I make sure that they receive us farm workers, that they receive us immigrants, that they receive us essential workers and to be able to hear our stories, too, because we matter, too. Um, I ended up then getting my master's degree, the first one in both sides of my family to get a master's degree in public policy and was very proud shortly after when my little sister got her master's in social work as well. And now seeing more of my family members not only graduating from college, but going on and getting higher education, getting master's degree from that, too. And so it's been really exciting to be able to see it in my own family. And it gives me so much hope of what that's going to mean for my daughter. I have a little girl and I have big dreams for her. And uh, I my dream is for her to be able to live in a world where the possibilities truly are endless, where to say that she's going to be the next Latina president and, I, and notice I said next Latina president because I hope it is. She's certainly not the first one. I hope by then we have more. Um, but I, that's that's what I hope is that when she says something like that, it's not something that's so crazy, but that's something right. that is totally be within could be within reach and that she could be able to do it with so much joy in her heart. Oh, my goodness. I just want to wrap, you know, your sto- your whole story. It just it's so interesting because I also have children and I have said very similar words that you just say, you know, we want to change the world for our future, for our, not only our kiddos, but obviously our community. But if our kids, if we can make that world a better place for our kids, then they will be able to have a better life than us, hopefully, you know, in the future. Um, and then it's interesting, we flip scripts because I started with political, you know, community organizing, I was going in, but then I changed it, I flipped it and I was like, well, we need to do communications, you know, our stories are not being told. And it's just really a nice blend of both, right? We need to be able to blend both with political action. You're currently in Washington, D.C. or outskirts of Washington, D.C. and making those political moves and making sure they know our stories. Uh, And then also that both of them, I think I just said both at the same time, but yeah, just both being blended in uh, so beautifully. And I, I, I hope that that encompasses change and it does allow individuals to see the real the real work that's happening or the real things that are currently happening to our communities. We continuously see a lot of things happening specifically to Latinas. And I want to make sure we touch base into um, 
your career currently uh, with Justice for Migrant work Women, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now. Uh, you talked a little bit about policy, potentially lobbying, but can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like for you, how you have embraced this job um, in your career? Absolutely. Uh, I'm the Chief Programs Officer at Justice for Migrant Women, and in this organization, which was founded um, by our CEO, Monica Ramirez, who is a dear friend, but also a great inspiration, uh, you know, we work to be able to advance the human and civil, civil rights of migrant women, whether those are women that are crossing international borders, that are crossing state borders, you know, both things that my family did, or even county lines folks that are moving to be able to provide for their families. And we believe that they deserve to be able to feel safe, to be able to be paid um, for their work, to be able to have an opportunity to provide for themselves and their families. Uh, and so we have a number of programming that is both from Washington DC space and being able to do the policy work to some of our culture shift and our narrative work that we do to be able to share these powerful stories of, of mujeres from across the country and across the globe. And to even uh, with COVID, would that both Monica and myself counting come from farm worker backgrounds. We, we got together at the beginning of COVID and, and said, we need to mobilize. We need to get these resources out to our community because having grown in these rural communities, in these farm worker communities, we knew that they were going to be overlooked as they have often been overlooked. They were going to be forgotten. They were going to be left out of so much of this, uh, of these emergency funds and aids that were being provided to communities across. And, and surely enough, those that did not have uh, a social security number, those that did not have an ITIN were being left out of much needed relief. Um, so many of the families that we got to work with were telling us about how they were struggling to find diapers for their children, baby formula to be able to find toilet paper, right? That was the big thing that nobody could find toilet paper in, in urban settings, let alone in rural communities where where farm workers had limited access to the health that they need, this, the health support that they needed to PPE. And so we mobilized, we were able to fundraise upwards of, of millions of dollars of, of close to $5 million in, in emergency funds and in PPE and, and sent all of those to the front lines, to these small little organizations that, again, we knew did not have the capacity to be able to get these federal resources. We gave them the funds. We gave them the PPE. We gave them the donations from big companies and said, distribute it how you know best your community. And when they would tell us, well, what about all this eligibility? Don't worry about the eligibility. Don't worry about any of these pieces. The idea here is we need to get this help. This, this money, this emergency funds and support to the communities that need it the most, because we were getting stories of of hundreds of families waiting in, in line for at food banks and, and not getting any food at the end of a four hour wait because they ran out. I mean, it was really dire and we knew that was going to happen. And we kicked our COVID work into gear and we continue to do the advocacy work around the bandana project and, and speaking out against workplace violence. We continue to do work. Um, around uh, the rural civic engagement and making sure that people in rural America, uh, we changed that narrative. So we realized that rural America is full of so many beautiful women, you know, women of all the different colors and backgrounds and, you know, LGBTQ and indigenous and black and, um, 
you know, Asian American and all kinds of different things that are often not connected as being part of rural America, but then also encouraging them to be able to get their voices heard, to be involved, even if they can't vote because they're undocumented or because of, of, of um, issues with the justice system or anything else. There's other ways to be civically engaged and, be, and to have your voice heard. And so I can go on and on because we do so much wonderful work to be able to empower migrant women, to be able to change the way people look at us and to be able to recognize the power in our voices and our stories. Um, and, that, and part of that too, you know, we lead with Latina Equal Pay Day, which is coming up as well too. You know, all of it is really important work that, you know, we welcome people who want to come and be a part of this work. Everybody has their little piece. You talked about the communications piece, the policy piece. There's so many pieces that people can be able to bring their little granito de arena, their little mm -hmm. way of being able to contribute and to be a part of this movement of what it means to be able to create a world in which we can all be able to thrive, including our, our daughters that we are raising, um, our brown and black and indigenous and, and all these other different kinds of, of children that are coming up in this world. We want them to be able to fulfill their promise. Yes. And, you know, our session today is called Knowing Your Worth with Norma Flores Lopez. And I want to talk a little bit um, in, I mean, you have so much going on, like you said, and we can cover it all in half a day, I think, or maybe a, possibly a full day. But today, let's talk a little bit about the event that you mentioned that is coming up, Equal Pay Day for Latinas. Can you break down some numbers for me? What does that look like? Uh, how much are we getting paid and how much are we not getting paid? So today, um, as you mentioned, I am talking about Latina Equal Pay Day, which is we're celebrating this year on October 21st. And people are often confused about why that date is moving. What we're looking at is how long does it take for us to be able to catch up to what a white man is paid? And with the latest data, what we're looking at is it takes 22 months for a Latina to be able to earn the same as a white man is able to earn in 12 months. That means that we're getting paid 57 cents to the dollar. What that means is over a career of, of let's say a 40 year career, Latinas stand to lose more than a million dollars. Now, just think about what you could be able to do with a million dollars. The education we'd be able to provide for our children, the debt we'd be able to pay back, the home that we'd be able to buy, um, the retirement that we'd be able to have for ourselves and even for like our parents, a million dollars could really go a long way to be able to um, secure the financial future of our families. And that's what Latinas are losing, even though Latinas continue to be leaders in our community, in the workplace, in our homes. We have such an important role, but when it comes to our worth, we are not being paid. We are not being compensated. We are not being valued our true worth. And so especially over the pandemic, we have seen that this has been an incredibly big problem. What the data is showing that 66% of Latinas worry about their ability to be able to meet the financial needs of their, of their homes. And that also it's been that the Latinas have lost a higher share of their jobs during the pandemic. It's hard to be able to get the full picture because some of that data is missing. We still don't have a full uh, view of what this has meant, but we have seen that it has been truly devastating for Latinas this pandemic, even though Latinas make up a huge portion of the essential jobs that are out there. These essential workers that we're celebrating got a pat in the back but at the end of the day, are not getting compensated for that, are not getting the workplace protections. Nothing has really changed for these essential workers. And Latinas are right there. And they're among some of the most vulnerable, especially when it comes to those that are undocumented. Uh, you know, from Latinas, 14 percent overall 
had to quit their jobs because of lack of child care. And from those, those that are undocumented, it was a bigger portion. It was 32% of them. They had some really hard choices that they had to make. Take care of our kids that are now at home as the schools are being shut down and trying to help them with their education or be able to go to the workplace and provide, you know, food for my children so they could be able to eat. And so it really squeezed women. And so I think it's important, though, to talk about how the data continues to leave out people. We don't invest enough resources. And there are a lot of folks that are being left out. Those that are undocumented, it's hard to get a good number on them. Folks that are Afro-Latino, for example, that are checked more than one box. Folks mm -hmm. that are from our trans community, they are not being counted either. And so it's really hard to get the full picture, but from what we are able to see, we're seeing that it is Latinas who are getting impacted and we can't wait anymore. And so really what we need to do is we're calling on people to be able to call their members of Congress to be able to pass the Paycheck Fairness Act, um, along with other pieces like comprehensive immigration reform. That is absolutely important for our community. Um, but that won't fix everything. We need to make sure that people are uniting, that they're speaking out, that we're uh, being able to have our voices, our stories heard and be able to share this sort of data this, that shows that Latinas are not getting paid what they're worth and we can't afford to wait any longer. Yes. You know, I'm ready for those million dollars that you mentioned. So whenever that check comes out, <laughs> por favor, send it to me. Yes. Thank you very much. You know, it, I joke. But it's not funny. You know, it is truly not funny that we're not get, getting paid equally. Um, and it's not like you said, it's essential workers. But it, the 75 percent of other Latinas which have careers, you know, we're, we're talking about individuals that are in professionals, professional um, teachers, professors, doctors, dentists, uh, community organizers, you know, people that are in this room, they may not be getting paid the same amount as their counterpart. And that really affects our livelihood on a major way, just picturing those million dollars. Um, I've, I've recognized that in my work. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you personally, but I know it has happened to me personally where various jobs I had was not getting paid the same as my counterpart. And then I had to advocate for a race, but then they just raced it just a little bit more, but not, you know, not to the same level and or didn't, you know, didn't give us a promotion or didn't give us the job, whatever it may be. Um, we constantly see those things happening to our community. And I recently had a conversation with one of my friends. Her name is Carmen Montes, and she worked for Univision out of Oregon. And she talked a little bit about that wage piece. Um, I, you mentioned the policy, and I want to retouch it again. He said, Paycheck Reform Act, right? It's and a we're Paycheck going, Fairness Act. I'm sorry. <laughs> Paycheck <laughs> Fairness Act. Yes. I, I'm writing my notes. I'm writing my notes. Okay. Paycheck Fairness Act. Tell me, what, what does that do? What, what, how will that help me, and how will that help our daughters in the future? So that, of course, is only a step, right? The policy mm -hmm. is only as good as we're able to be able to enforce it and implement it. And so right. what that does is make sure that women are not being discriminated against and that we are getting paid. As you said, all of us have experienced those sort of situations where... You know, we are working just as hard, if not harder, to be able to prove ourselves in the workplace. And we are often overlooked for um, certain positions or promotions. Uh, we are not being 
compensate the same as other people because we're not seen as being aggressive enough or as dedicated enough. But yet we're the ones that are always raising our hand and always willing to be able to take on additional work and to be a team player and to pitch in and to be able to, you know, go above and beyond what we're being asked for. Uh, we see that that these are women professionals are hermanas that are out there that are bilingual, sometimes trilingual, that are educated. We are earning, you know, higher education degrees, outpacing uh, other communities, and yet we are not seeing that happen. And so again, the policy is only one piece, but what does that mean in the workplace and how we're showing ourselves up and what we're demanding and what we're asking for? It's going to take all of us to be able to not only change it with laws being passed, but the culture and what we're teaching our daughters too of what they're worth. How is it that we're talking to those daughters about what sort of jobs they should be looking for, what sort of opportunities they should be seeking out? You know, it's us also in the in in our homes as mujeres that we are the the leaders in our in our homes to be able to show our daughters that you know you can do both. You can be able to show up both in the workplace and still be present at home. And those balances that we require on both of those. So while there are those pieces, there are other parts too, like for the Build Back Better packages that are asking for additional resources for our community, you know, for better access to childcare, for example, for better compensation for other aids into our community, real ways that can be able to have big racial and and to be able to, to close some of these racial inequities that we continue to see in our community and some of these gender inequities that we see as well. And so we need to be able to not only do that, but to ask for more data collection so that we can be able to truly understand what is happening to Latinas, because that's how they're able to get away with it, right? It's to be able to hide and through this sort of cloudiness and, and no real transparency. And that's who we want to be able to see differently. What are Latinas experiencing? As I mentioned, even the numbers for 2020 do not cover, do not show the full picture. They don't account for example, the 5.5 million women that were pushed out of the workplace. Who are those women? Those are the ones that were working in hospitality and entertainment. Those are the ones that are probably the lowest earning. And so the numbers might show that we're closing on that gap, but in reality, it's just discounting all of those women who were the breadwinners who are now among the most vulnerable in our community and who are their children are depending on to be able to bring home you know, the, that financial support that they need for their basic needs. And so what we need to be able to do, too, is to be able to ask for more data, data that includes, as I mentioned, the Afro-Latinx community members, that includes our trans sisters and hermanas, that is looking at those indigenous communities as well, that does more to be able to show the true picture of not only what is it that our community is contributing to make sure that this country keeps running, but also to be able to show the sad reality that we are not getting what we are worth. Let's let's break it down for two people. I want you to have two people in mind. One, Nostra, young little sister, right? She's trying to figure it out. She's trying to get her pay raise because she's bilingual or she's trying to figure out how to get that promotion because she wants to get that job. What would be some words of inspiration for her uh, if she is currently working somewhere and she's trying to do her best, what would you tell her and how would you let her know, hey, you're worth this, um, continue to advocate on behalf of yourself? What, how would you inspire her to do that? So 
the first thing I would do is to be able to encourage her to bring her full self of who she is. I think that when we are able to be our full selves in our workplace, that's when we are able to really see some magic happen, when we're able to be able to be our best. And that means for me, I've been able to bring my full Latina self to be able to bring my full, um, you know, the personality into this and to be able to really lean in and to know what I am worth, that when I go into the boardroom, that I alone know my experiences and to be able to trust in that and that that is worth something. And I say that because oftentimes when I work with members of our community, they feel like, no, no, those people that are educated know more than me. They have, you know, a better understanding and what I try to remind them is your lived experience, nobody can be able to replace that. You who works to be able to pick these fruits and vegetables, that is an invaluable service. That is a labor of love. That is such dignified work that is so important to be able to keep our country going more so than me now as a talking figure. <laughs> and so to them, to be able to remind this young Latina who's coming into the boardroom, who's coming into the office, who's going out into the field, wherever it is that they're being, to be able to bring them their full selves and to trust in their story and their abilities and in, in their skills and their knowledge, because it is very valuable. And so that would be the first piece of it. And I will couple that with saying that a lot of the times we tend to put this on those young Latinas and say, it is you who is making the determination of where you're at. And instead of looking at those systems that we've been talking about that are keeping that Latina, she could work so hard and be her full self. And right. that doesn't guarantee that she's going to be paid a fair wage because there is the wage theft out there that there is the lack of rights and protection. There is the, the lack of protection even and making sure that she's able to get paid her fair share, um, all of those pieces are systemic. And so to blame her for what these companies are getting away with, to blame her for what our country is allowing to happen is, is unfair to once again burden her with that. And so I think that the other important piece too is to be able to sort of take a step back and to look at these systems and say, we need to be able to break them down to make real change in order for our hermanas, our sisters, our amigas, all of those people, our coworkers to be able to make a real difference and to be able to fulfill their promise. We need to make sure that everybody is doing their part to break down the current systems that is not set up for us to win. I mean, that's the reality. Mm -hmm. They're working exactly the way they're supposed to be working. And people like you and me are not meant to win in this particular game. And so we need to break that down and to be able to change that. And so for us that are making our way in the world, the trailblazers, the ones that are up in leadership positions, we have a huge responsibility of looking out for those behind us. It's not enough that we quote unquote made it. I have my degrees. I have my job. I'm good now. I don't have to worry about anybody else. But rather, let's look at how we are running our own organizations, our own companies. How are we compensating those that are there? How are we making sure that those women um, are able to, to succeed, that are having those opportunities? What are we doing to make sure that we are breaking down our own barriers within our country, within our communities, with our, within our workplaces, we also have a responsibility now to be able to create a better future for those Latinas. Yes. And I, I love how you broke down the system piece and I kind of, that's where my second one comes along. So I really appreciate you already answering a little bit of it, but for our non-Latinx individuals that are in the room, for the people that can or are on that boardroom that can affect some of that change that affects us, uh, and I'm not talking white saviorship, right? I'm not talking that. I'm talking allyship. And what does that look like for individuals that are not Latinos that have 
and potentially may have an impact on our lives. I love that you brought that, Gladys, because one, our community has the knowledge to be able to save themselves. They just need you to be able to give them the resources and get out of the way. (laughs) And so that is absolutely true. We have the answers. What we don't have is the opportunities to be able to excel, to be able to be in charge. So I'm a big believer of just giving the resources straight to the people and letting them handle it. Um, But For those people that continue to be in power until that magical day when we are all free and we are all able to fulfill our promise and and our full potential, for those folks that are looking on ways how they can be allies, I, I say we start with representation matters. Those people who get to be around the room, take a look at those around the table of the decision making and see does, is this reflective of our country, of our community, of our workplace? If it, if it's not, then we can start there, making mm-hmm. sure that those people in leadership are also making way for other people of color, of uh, those from um, those disadvantaged or uh, underrepresented communities, um, to be able to give them an opportunity to be able to lead. How are we investing in those communities? How are we investing in our junior staff? How are we creating um, succession plans and pathways to leadership positions for these people, for these uh, different individuals from different backgrounds? Because I think that. Our, our leadership has to be reflective of the communities that we are serving, that we are leading in. And so there's a lot of place for them to be able to do that. And there's also a place to be able to hear the stories and believe them, those experiences of what these women are going through. Give them an opportunity to be able to share that. Give them an opportunity to be able to create real change within your workplace, within your community, within your organization, to be able to uh, allow them and support them to be able to create those environments that allow them to be able to thrive. Um, And I think that that's a good start. Uh, And I also want to invite people to go over to our website, Justice for Migrant Women's website um, and our Facebook. We will have a virtual summit um, in which we will talk about these issues and how those allies can be able to show up. And and we have great flash talks and musicians and special guests that are going to come in and talk a little bit about what it means to be a Latina. And like I said, it starts with raising awareness, with changing the 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 look of who's in the room, um, of being able to listen more um, and, and to allow other people to be able to lead and to learn how they could be able to participate. Like I said, on our website, we'll have information about the summit. We will have a social media storm to be able to talk about these very issues and how people can be able to show up. And we will get to hear also from other allies, from other communities. There's a place for everybody to be able to do more. Um, and it starts with being just willing to listen and to learn. Right. Well, Norma, I know you. I'm so grateful for your time. I've already, yeah, you know, thank you so much for making, putting a little bit of time in your schedule to share a little bit about you, what you do, your work, your very important work. Están invitados. You are all invited to October 21st Equal Pay Day Summit with uh, Justice for Migrant Women y con Norma Flores Lopez. We're so appreciative of you and the work that you continue to do. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate you and Monica también and all of your all of your team. Gracias, Gladys. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And we'll see you all on October 21st. Please make sure you follow and subscribe to Courageous Mujer Podcast. Hasta la próxima.